Well, I want to ask you some questions to start out this morning. Have you ever been in a conversation or around a conversation, maybe in the workplace or in school, and just what was being talked about made you feel like polluted, made you feel dirty, like you need a bath afterward? Have you ever participated in a conversation like that? And then when you walked away, you felt like with what you said, you betrayed God. Have you ever seen something you wish you hadn't seen in a movie or in the internet or in a magazine? Have you ever said to yourself, I'll never look at something like that again? Have you ever found yourself looking at something like that again in far less time than you would have imagined? If so, you're no different than most Christians who've ever lived. We're ending our series this morning on your tough questions. Uh, For the last year, you have passed in these cards with tough questions you wanted to hear addressed on a Sunday morning. And this is the last for a time, but we'll do it again next year. Uh, The first question that comes to us is just one word. Lust. If I could do a little handwriting analysis on this card... The letters have a slant of urgency. There's a, an, the letters are really unsteady and, and quivering, you know, almost desperate. The word is not in the center of the card. It's off-center. It's smashed four lines down, a little off to the side. It's nothing proud or confident in this question. In fact, the letters fade out a lot by the time you get to the end of the word, and it's only four letters. As if by the time they got to the letter T, there just wasn't any strength left. This is how we feel sometimes in the face of lust. Powerless, with no strength left. We all want to live out our sexuality in spiritual ways, and in good ways, in holy ways that we can be proud of. Because this is the 21st century, and I I think by now we all have this figured out. God gave us our sexuality. It is a gift, and it is a very good thing. But we also know that our culture is sex-crazed, encouraging us to take the the good things God has given us in the wrong way, at the wrong time, in the wrong proportion. C.S. Lewis was a Christian writer who wrote these words. We grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity. That's sex outside of marriage. We grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity. There are people who want to keep our sex instinct inflamed in order to make money out of us. Because, of course, a man with an obsession is a man with very little sales resistance. Guys, he wrote that in 1943. He wrote that before television, before the internet. He says, we grow up with this stuff. He was born in 1898. He already felt like this. Imagine what he would write if he could see what we see now. Think of what you're going to be shown today from the ads on your phone and email and anything you buy on Amazon and the billboards and the TV commercials before lunch today. Think what someone will flash at you before lunch today. So this is why Lewis writes, God knows our situation. He will not judge us as if we had no difficulties to overcome. What matters is the sincerity and the perseverance of our will to overcome them. 
That may be our theme for this morning, the sincerity of our will to overcome them. I was teaching a class for the Parks and Recreation Department one year, and I was working at night, and I'd forgotten to bring a meal. So my wife came up to bring me some dinner. By the time she got there, it was very late in the evening. So when she opened the door, the sun was really low, and it flooded into the room. So when she opened the door, everybody turned and looked. And what I saw in the doorway was just her silhouette. Now, after a long day working, when I saw just the shape of her in the doorway with the sunbeams bursting out, I had one thought. I can't wait to get home tonight. (laughs) This is a good thing. This is a good thing. This is one of the things God programmed into us, especially into men. The sexual instinct draws us home again. That's good, because with men, once we find a hobby or a work that we enjoy, and I was doing a really cool job there, let's face it, we could stay out and do that all the time, but we have an instinct that reminds us to go home, to go back. That's one of the things it does. It draws us back into intimacy and back into relationships, so you can't just work all the time. You also have a relationship of love. That's good. That's a good function. The fact that our culture now wants to take that good function and use it to sell us stuff. Sex is now used to sell everything from dishwashing soap to auto parts. That's ridiculous and a sign of the evilness of our time. Now the question is, with all these images flashing at us, constantly saying lust, 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 dash, buy, 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 do we really want to fight it? That's really our key question, I think. Do we really want to fight it? Because I have heard Christians say, Christians say, oh, I window shop, you know, look at other women. Uh, Or, or, well, I've actually never heard women say it. I'd love to be equal opportunity, but I don't have the reality to back that up. I've only heard men say this. Yeah, yeah, I window shop. It's not a problem. Or or sneaking a peek is not a sin. Uh, I heard one person tell me God made women hot. So when I look at them, I'm just enjoying his creation. All the while, pretending that God did not say, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And even without God, never mind the story that exists on how a girl goes from being somebody's daughter to somebody who poses naked. And if you've ever gotten to hear one of those real stories of how someone makes that journey, it greatly diminishes the thrill. This is why Lewis wrote, before we can be cured, we must want to be cured. Those who really wish for help will get it, but for many modern people, even the wish is difficult. It's easy to think that we want something when we do not really want it. A famous Christian long ago told us that when he was a young man, he prayed constantly for chastity. But years later, he realized that while his lips had been saying, Oh, Lord, please make me chaste, his heart had been secretly adding, But please don't do it just yet. Lord, free me from sexual sin, but please not quite yet. Even the wish is difficult. Which is maybe why one of you wrote, Why does God let others tempt me with so many things? I am strong, but I have fallen. I have risen, but how many times must I fail? 
How many times must I fail? Perennial question of the Christian faith. We've all done it with all sorts of topics. We've said, I will not stuff myself with junk food this year. And then we eat another piece of cake. I will not get drunk again. Nothing good ever happens when I do. And then we go out with the guys or go with the family down to the lake and we're drunk again. I will not look at pornography again. And then we click on another video. I will not gossip about my neighbor. And then somebody tells a story and, oh, we've got one too. And we cut loose. So the questioner asks, how many times can we fail? I I wonder if underneath that there isn't a subtext. How many times can I fail before God is fed up with me and says, you're out of do-overs? The very definition of the grace of God is, how many times can you fail? Another time. That is the very definition of grace. Another time. So hard for us to believe, but it is in fact, the answer is in fact, another time. Read your entire Old Testament again. It may take you a couple of years, but but read the whole thing again and, and ask yourself, how many times did Israel fail to follow God in the Old Testament? Two times? Ten times? We're still not scratching the surface. A hundred times? Afraid not. A thousand times? We're getting closer. Did God punish them for these failings? Absolutely. Did he always forgive them and bring them back home? Absolutely. Did he send Jesus to save them and save the world through them? Absolutely. Do we find Paul writing in the New Testament that even though some rejected Christ, was he not still praying that not just his brothers in Israel, but the whole world would come to follow Jesus Christ and take the second chance and the third chance and another chance? Absolutely. So this morning with these questions is a good time for us to remember what the whole point of being Christian is. So here's a big statement. What is the whole point of being Christian? To be in Christ. To live a life in Christ. Now good morals will certainly help you with that journey, but I want to tell you they are not the final goal of what you're doing. That's not the final goal of what you're doing. The final goal is to live a life in Christ. C.S. Lewis writes, We may may indeed be sure that perfect chastity, like perfect charity, will not be attained by any merely human effort. You must ask for God's help. Even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or else less help than you need is being given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness. Pick yourself up and try again. Very often, what God first helps us toward is not the virtue itself, but just the power of always trying again. More than someone who always gets it right, it seems God would rather us be the type of people who always try again. Back to Lewis. Forever, how, for however important chastity or courage or truthfulness or any other virtue may be, This process trains us in habits of the soul which are more important still, for real, more important that we be the type of people who will always try again. What lessons are we learning? Back to Lewis. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. We learn on the one hand we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments. 
And on the other hand, that we need not despair even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. In this battle with lust or anything else, the only fatal thing is to say, well, I failed so many times, this must be who I am. I think from now on I'm just going to roll with it. That's the only fatal move. As long as you try again, you're still moving toward God. These struggles you and I are having, they are accomplishing a greater purpose in us of drawing us closer to God, which I said was the whole point. So let's keep on this theme of what's the whole point of this Christian faith. Because one of you asked this question. What is the difference between moralism and Christianity? Very scholarly question. I think I know why someone would ask this here at Lakeland because very often Pastor Dan, and sometimes myself, will stand up here and and issue a line that sounds like this. We're not here to teach you moralism. We're here to teach you the Christian faith. Have you heard it before? Jesus didn't come to teach you moralism. He came to give you a new picture of God. We say that a lot. So here's a person asking, well, what's the difference? Oh, man, what a great question. I'm so glad you asked. The difference is the whole point. The whole point of moralism is good morals, good behavior. So if you're in a moralistic church, that church will teach you good character qualities because that is, after all, the whole point. So your membership in that church will rely upon your good behavior and your good morals because that is the whole point. And failings in your morals in a moralistic church are, in fact, failures of your faith. Because the whole point was good morals. So if you don't have good morals, you have, in fact, failed at the whole point. That's a moralistic church. Now, moralistic churches have to pick and choose which sins to pay attention to and which sins to ignore. That's the opposite of what you'd think, but it's true. Because there's so many sins in the world... You can't pay attention to them all at once and ever have anybody come out a winner. So in a moralistic church, they tend to split the sin list about in half and ignore half and really harp on half. For instance, it's very common in a moralistic church to let sins of like greed and gossip just go ignored unless the church needs money that year and then they'll do four weeks on greed. It's called stewardship time. Um, (laughs) So you, you, you ignore gossip and greed completely. However, sins of drunkenness and fornication... Harped on constantly. Moralistic church. Christianity is different. Here's the difference. In Christianity, the goal is to know God and love God and live in Christ. Know God and love God and live in Christ. So when a Christian church talks about morals, they tend to talk about it more as the behaviors that cause you to walk toward God instead of away from God. However, the whole point is to move toward God. So if you have moral failures where you spend some time moving away from God, it can be tolerated in a Christian church because the whole point wasn't the morals. It was to turn and make a journey toward God. Failures in behavior then are not a chance to ask, are you in or out of heaven? They're a chance to ask, Am I near or far from God? Is what I've just done tell me? Am I getting further away or getting closer? Which then automatically comes with the opportunity to turn. Repent is the fancy old word. To turn and begin moving back toward God again because that is, after all, the whole point. 
in a Christian church, you try not to pick and choose which sins to pay attention to, but be guided by scripture and, and, and the life of the community into giving each one its time. And in a Christian church, you have to be honest. This will send some waves of what? But uh, you have to be honest that not all sins are equal. I know in your moralistic church, you learned that all sins are equal in the sight of God, but they were ignoring half the list. So of the half that were left, then they had to make a big deal about them. Um, It's just not true. We know that God can tell the difference between the bubble gum that you stole when you were 16 years old out of your friend's purse and leading a child army in Uganda. He can tell the difference. He's that sharp, all right? So we have to admit there are different sins. And each has to be given their focus based on the damage they do to your soul. So, for instance, drunkenness, definitely drunks do damage their soul. Ask anyone who's in alcohol recovery. It also wreaks havoc on your productive life. It makes relationships and work very hard. It's not only a sinful thing, it's a very unwise thing to do. Gossip, on the other hand, doesn't do very much to your productive life. In fact, some of the most productive people in the world gossip, but I want to tell you, it shreds your soul. It shreds your soul and it damages the community and it poisons the church. It poisons the church and taints the message of Jesus Christ. Gossip is more dangerous to the Christian life than drunkenness. C.S. Lewis agrees. He wrote, Though I have spoken at some length about sex, I want to make it as clear as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not here. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity, sex outside of marriage, as the supreme vice, he's quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad. I want to say that with him. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they're the least bad of all the sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong. The, presence of the, uh, the pleasure of bossing and patronizing, of spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasure of power, the pleasure of hatred. He's implying that what you, the nasty response you posted to your friend's Facebook wall may be more damaging than who you slept with last Friday to your soul. Here's how he explains it. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must not become. They are the animal self. The animal self just wants more sex, more food, and more always please. And the diabolical self that wants more power, more influence to be taken more seriously and to know that I'm better than you. The diabolical self and the animal self. He says the diabolical self is the worst of the two. And that is why the cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. Ask yourself about the ministry of Jesus. He talked to prostitutes. He talked to Pharisees. Who did he call sons of hell who cross land and sea to win a single convert only to make them twice the son of hell that you are? Not prostitutes, preachers. Beware of all the sins, particularly the diabolical ones that set you above your neighbor. They may be more dangerous than these ones we've been asking about, although we get most worked up about these. So in this congregation, we want to proclaim the good news. 
uh, that the Son of God has come and he's shown us a new picture of God. And his kingdom has begun. And here's the best news of all. You're already accepted into the kingdom by the love of God. You have only to turn and follow the one who will show you the way. There's no test you have to pass. You just turn from the path you're going and follow behind Jesus and he will take you into eternal life. That's good news. That's good news. Now we believe uh, by cutting yourself free of the leashes of sin and the chains of sin, that you are now free to run with God into that paradise that starts right now. You'll experience it immediately and extends into forever and eternal life. So if we ever preach against sin here at Lakeland, and we often do, it is not to slap your hand. It's to increase your speed. It's to say, you don't have time to be chained to that garbage anymore. You need to be set free to run into the fields of heaven with a God who is more youthful and more full of energy than any of us could ever have imagined. He'll wear you out if you just try to keep up. And now uh, your question, that's what we want to say about lust. Now your questions are going to take a turn. Uh, Now these questions begin to grapple with trying to live as a Christian in a world where you may well have friends and co-workers who don't live Christian lives, in fact, love their non-Christian lives. So how do you live in and among those people? Here's your first question. Why do I understand and love God but still fall short of totally surrendering? When others around me begin to cuss and carry on in sexual banter, I haven't the strength to bring Jesus Christ into their and my life. I'm asking, is this what God wants me to do? Does God want you to bring Jesus Christ into an inappropriate conversation? And the answer is, ultimately, yes. Jesus wants to come into that conversation. He wants to redeem that conversation and redeem everyone involved in it. But this is the mark of a Lakelander, if if nothing else, that we pay attention to how. How you do that means everything. Jesus does not want you to come in with a moral pronouncement, you know, where someone says, oh, no, two rabbis and somebody else walk into a bar. No, you say, this is sin. This is the sin of racism, and Jesus wants you to repent and turn. This, This around the water cooler is, in fact, not what Jesus wants you to do. In fact, look at the Gospels again. Read all four of them during this uh, season of Lent that's coming up. You'll see Jesus only talked that way to religious people who should have already known better. Look again. If you find Jesus saying, this is sin, and you've got to stop it, he's talking to religious people who were already sitting there like they knew it. Because Jesus knew morality is not good news. Forgiveness and freedom are good news. Jesus knows that he comes better into a conversation when forgiveness is needed, when there's real brokenness. So here's a story about that. I had a friend in college, and she used to love to torment me with all her stories of her sexual exploits, what all she'd done and where, and and she just loved, because I was her Christian friend, token Christian friend, how my face would turn red, and I'd get all embarrassed, and she just loved to torment me with this stuff. And she seemed so proud of it all. Until one morning, we were walking from speech communications class to the student commons, and I don't know what had happened to her, but somewhere there in the quad, she broke down crying. 
And she stopped walking and she said, you don't have any idea what all I've done. She said, even what I've told you, it's not half of it. And you have no idea how dirty I feel. Um, I truthfully don't remember what I said in that moment. I was a sophomore in college. I was pretty shocked the whole thing was happening and I, I don't remember what I said. I'd like to think in that moment that I said something about the love of God. And I said something about how cherished she was by him. And that, yes, in fact, he did have a totally different kind of life for her. The grace you show people who are acting inappropriately will bring more good news and more Jesus into their life and yours than your judgment ever will. Let us remember that Jesus was accused of hanging out too much with tax collectors and notorious sinners. They, they, they hated Jesus because he sat around all the time with extortionists and prostitutes. And this is who he hang out with and went to dinner parties with. And, and there he was, and I'm sure they were laughing and talking it up, but I believe he was waiting for the party to die down and for the people to come clean with the real story of the real hurt, and then he was there to be light, to show the better way. Now, not being a part of that conversation yourself would, however, be a great start in how to bring Jesus into the conversation. The way to bring Jesus into an inappropriate conversation is not by showing that you can cuss and rip off dirty jokes just as well as the rest of them. Now, uh, all my friends are sitting in stony silence now wondering what I'm going to say about this because they know I have no stones to throw at anybody on this. I have a, a, um, a dark sense of humor. <laughs> and I think it's funny to be shocking and to overthrow what people are expecting. And, uh, you know, to hear people say, wow, I didn't think Garrett would say something like that. But I want to tell you that I always feel disappointed in myself when I leave that conversation every time. And sometimes I know I have disappointed my unchristian friends. They have told me. They have told me, although they were laughing in a secret, although they were laughing at the time, in a secret corner of their heart, they were hoping that this God thing might be real. And that I, the only Christian friend they knew, might be different. But they told me I let them down. All I showed them was that Christians can be just as vulgar and rude as anybody else. And that there truly is Nowhere for them to go to escape from this life they're getting so tired of. So not being a part of these inappropriate conversations would be a great place uh, for you and I to start to bring Jesus into the conversation. But don't do it in a superior way, like I'm better than that and I'm better than you. But rather in a way that brings something positive. So I used to teach high school. I used to eat in the teacher's lounge. The teacher's lounge... I don't want to say the teacher's lounge is hell, but it, it might be the hell mouth. Like, you can, you can definitely see hell from there. Um, things get said about children in the teacher's lounge that should never be said about children. You can feel your love for children draining out of you in the teacher's lounge. So one Sunday morning, Pastor Dan had preached a message very much like what I'm preaching, and so it was the start of Lent, so I, I went to school Monday, and I said, guys, for the next seven weeks, it was Lent, but for the next seven weeks, why don't we just 
Take a break from all the negativity. Why don't we only tell good stories in the teacher's lounge? Only tell the stories of the things the kids said that made you laugh, the kid who did something clever, the bad kid who took a step in the right direction. Let's just only tell the good stuff. And everybody's like, ah, okay. And so uh, for the first week, I really had to police it. Like, okay, that was not a good story, so tell me something good he did. Well, he turned in his assignment. Yay, he turned in his assignment. And, you know, but after a week, people kind of got with the groove. Okay, I see what you're doing here. And by, by the end of the six weeks, I want to tell you, our love for kids was filling up. Two principals started to come down and eat in the teacher's lounge with us because I think it was such a place of positivity. And I'd like to say that after our Lord's resurrection on Easter Sunday, we never told bad stories again, but it's always easier to be negative. But I, I do, for those six weeks, I do believe that uh, I did the right thing and I brought Jesus into a place where he had not previously been. And I think his people, particularly his children in that school, benefited from that. So I would do it again. Another question says, how do you deal with working in an environment every day where unethical and immoral behavior is becoming more and more acceptable? And it's signed by a Lakeland staff member. It's really not signed by a Lakeland staff <laughs> However, this person's being very serious, so let's get our game face on here. How do you deal with working in an environment every day where unethical and immoral behavior is becoming more and more acceptable? First question I want to ask you is, is your soul in danger? Is, are you being tempted yourself to fall into these unethical and immoral patterns? If the answer is yes, then my answer is simple. Get out! Get out of there! There's nothing worth your soul. You got a family? Tell your whole family what's going on. Look, we're about to take a huge hit, but I got to pull the plug on this because my soul is being sucked into you know where. Bad stuff, guys. I, I got a break from this. Uh, get out. Nothing, nothing is worth your soul. Remember the words of Jesus. Um, remember the words of Jesus about this when he said, uh, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal uh, life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than be thrown into hell with two feet. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die. This is gross. And the fire never goes out. Jesus is saying to you, better to enter the kingdom of heaven with a lower paying job and a shabby vacation than to be driving into hell in a BMW with Disney World tickets. There's no point to it. Nothing's worth your soul. If you're in a school setting, better to, go, better to go into the kingdom of heaven with just one friend who you sit around and play Xbox on Friday night. Seems so lame. Than to enter the hell with a yearbook that says most likely to succeed and most popular. And you know, the book's burning in your hand. There's no point to it. Nothing is worth your soul. Now, if your answer to the question, no, I don't really believe my soul is in danger. I'm not myself being pulled into this unethical behavior and immorality. The first thing I want to say is, don't answer that too quickly. Don't answer that too quickly. Temptation is a, a more subtle and powerful force that changes people than we think. So if you're in an environment like that, you need to create yourself a little safety council. 
Tell your spouse, tell your very best Christian friends that you gather with regularly what's going on and what the temptations might be. And then give them permission to tell you, I think you're becoming what you hated. What you told us about you hated last year, you're starting to slip into that. Give them permission to say that to you. Once you've built that safety net, then begin to function in that environment as what Jesus called salt and light. Salt is something that preserves that which is rotting. So if your workplace is a, a rotting ethical piece of carrion, you know, then you be salt that preserves a piece of it, that preserves what is right and good and true and stands up for the weak, stands up for the customer, stands up for ethics and, the, and, and everyone involved to do what is right. You're preserving it. You are salt. And be light, something that points toward a better way. Because someday someone's going to say, this place is nuts. And you'll be able to say, but there's something redeemable if we do it this way. Let me point the light toward Jesus. So uh, this week, I'm not telling you to make waves in your company. What I'm saying is God will make the waves. You just have to commit to surf them when they come in. When God makes the waves, be ready to surf. Make a pledge to God that if God's spirit will bring conviction and brokenness in your workplace or in your circle of friends, if he'll bring the brokenness, you'll be there to be an ambassador of love. That if God will prepare the hearts of the people you work with or the people you hang out with, you'll be there and ready when you see that moment when their heart is now prepared and the truth is coming out. You'll be there to be their ambassador into the kingdom of God. And you can make that pledge today. And with those words, we go out into the world. I want to thank you all who submitted all these questions. We'll do this again next year. Um, This type of engagement with your faith is the type of energy that propels a church forward in its mission. And God has certainly given us a mission to do. And in 2015, we've got a lot of good stuff to do. I wish you could see what God has already been doing through the lives of this congregation just since the year began. I bet you're saying, well, I wish you could see what I've seen God has already been doing in the lives of our church since this year began. And uh, this type of engagement sends a signal to the community around us that says, your questions are welcome here. You don't know who God is. You have questions about God. You have doubts. You can ask your questions here, and we will sort through them in an environment of love and acceptance and honesty. And this is the type of energy that's going to take us far. We do have work to do, do we not? Has God not called us through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ to to proclaim the coming of his kingdom? Sight for the blind. Freedom for the captive. And let's get to it. In his name, amen.